0: We're actually looking at it for a bit, but after what Mike's just said, we all need to open our Bible. So if you turn to Genesis 3, ready for when we get to it. So we're going to continue looking at life to the full as part of our wider angle of looking at grace and specifically at the minute, looking at things that can get in the way of living life to the full. Um, For the last month or so, I felt that God wanted me to talk about shame and fear. And not just in a typical sermon way where I might just do a bit of a study in the Bible on shame and fear, tell you what I've learned. I think God wants me to talk about them from personal experience. And it'd be really nice if this meant sharing a testimony of how I've been freed from shame and fear. And I would love to be giving that sermon because it would mean I'm free, and I hope to give that sermon one day, and the sooner the better. But while it's important to give those testimonies of being freed, it's also important to speak when you're in that place you don't want to be in, Um, and just to be honest, and I believe that God wants me to speak about shame and fear from a place of struggle. Strap yourselves in, it's going to be a fun one today. When you look at fear, there's often a debate that goes on about whether or not fear is a sin. There's those who will tell you it's a sin because fear not is one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. A lot of people will say that it's there 365 times, once for every day of the year. It isn't in the Bible 365 times, not even close. It's about 100. Yeah. But a lot of people think. And I can see from some people who were nodding when I said 365 times, they think it is actually true. Fear may or may not be a sin, but I know lying is. (laughs) See, I believe that whether fear is a sin or not is the wrong question. What we've seen this year looking at grace is that as followers of Jesus, we are completely forgiven and raised to life. As a quote from C.S. Lewis in an earlier sermon this year, he didn't come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people alive. When God tells us not to fear, we need to see it from the, not from whether it's sin or not, for, but from the perspective of a father who wants the best for his children, yeah. who wants them to be living life to its fullest, yeah. and as part of that wants to see them freed from fear. Sorry I'm just that. Okay. okay. <laughs> the same applies to anything else we might be looking at as a barrier to living life to the full. Today I'm looking at fear and then shame I think because shame is a universal thing. So many things we struggle with can turn into shame. But hopefully some of what I say, even if fear is not your struggle, will apply to you. And you'll see parallels with maybe anything you're struggling with. I've struggled with fear for many years in all sorts of areas of my life. Those of you who know me know I'm an introvert and I'm shy. and They're not the same thing. Introversion is about getting your energy from time alone rather than being with people. Shyness is about not necessarily feeling comfortable around groups of people or being the center of attention. You can have introverts who are not shy or extroverts who are shy. But as I said, I'm introverted and shy, the double whammy. So I preach about the importance of community at times and I genuinely believe it, at least in theory, and on a good day in practice too. I just don't find it easy. Talking with people, it can just be hard, particularly when you're talking about anything deep and personal. I also struggle at times with something called imposter syndrome. For, the, for those who don't know, imposter syndrome is when you feel like a fraud in some area of your life. Often in your job, but not always. You continue, you just don't feel good enough in that area and then that can spill over into feeling the same way in other areas of your life. And I particularly struggle with that in my job as a teacher. It's hard not to think you're doing something wrong when a student gets up halfway through a lesson and starts skateboarding down a corridor. That's not a joke, that happened this year. Far too often, fear stops me from doing what I want to do or what I know I should do. And I hate the way it makes me feel, and at times, I hate myself for feeling the fear, for not doing what I know I should be doing, but don't do because of fear. And I'm not saying this so you're gonna all feel sorry for me as someone crippled by fear. I know there's people who would suffer with crippling anxiety and depression who may be suffering much more than me. And there's a lot of goodness in my life. I find great joy in God, in loved ones, friends and family, in teaching those students who would rather learn than ride their skateboard down the corridor. You can get into a mindset of thinking, I'll be happy when such and such a thing happens. When that's fixed, I'll be happy. I might be struggling now just because of my circumstances, but they're going to be better soon, then everything's going to be fine. So as to say, there's always going to be difficult circumstances ahead at some point. And our staff room at work this week one man who's been a teacher for around 20 years said that as he's been, something he's been saying every year through his career, hopefully next year it'll get easier, and it never has. Really fill me with hope. He's moving to a different college next year, hoping it finally will get easier if he moves somewhere else. He never had a year teaching skateboarding, BTech engineering students, though. Better if he had, his next year would have been better. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Uh, the Greek word, which is usually translated as happiness in the Bible, is uh, makarios, or I don't know, which uh, to the Greeks, it meant the freedom of the rich from normal cares and worries, or someone who'd received some kind of good fortune. It's happiness in your circumstances. Whereas the Greek word for joy is uh, kairo which means the culmination of being, or the good mood of the soul. Methodist pastor Anne Robertson says, "Caro is something, the ancient Greeks tell us, that is found only in God and comes with virtue and wisdom. It isn't a beginner's virtue, it comes as the culmination. They say its opposite is not sadness, but fear. And that's what I want, the joy found in God that is the opposite of Fear not the happiness of good fortune. I mean, I wouldn't mind that as well, but the joy of God, the perfect love that casts out all fear, that's what I really want. That's the life to the full that fear is getting in the way of in my life. And it may not be fear for you. There are all sorts of things that we struggle with that can get in the way, and get in the way of that joy and of living life to the full. And we'll be looking at more of those in the coming weeks. that's fear. And then as I said, the fear leads me to shame. Shame is different to guilt. They get confused. Guilt is the feeling you get when you feel bad about something you've done wrong. Shame is the belief that there's something wrong with you. Guilt is actually a healthy emotion. It leads us to confess mistakes and put things right. Someone who doesn't feel guilt is defined clinically as a sociopath someone who shows no regard for right and wrong, who ignores the rights and feelings of others. Shame, though, is not a healthy emotion. Shame can be crippling. And I know I'm not the only one struggling with it. It may not be shame born out of fear for you, but as I said, shame is all but universal. Everyone, I think, at some point in their life probably struggles with it. Don't want you to feel uh, left out if you've never felt shame or if you're not feeling it right now. If you're not struggling with shame, that's great. There's no shame in not feeling shame. It's exactly where you want to be. But I know a lot of people will be struggling with shame. Shame is evil. It's of the devil, and we need to be rid of it. And so we have to talk about it. Brene Brown is a shame researcher I've quoted before in sermons. I'm going to again a bit today. She says... Shame is basically the fear of being unlovable. It's the total opposite of owning our story and feeling worthy. In fact, the definition of shame that I developed from my research is, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging and connection. Shame needs three things to grow out of control in our lives, secrecy, silence, and judgment. And here are the first three things that you need to know about shame. One, we all have it, shame is universal and one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. The only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. Two, we're all afraid to talk about shame. And three, the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. And shame is being made worse by a society that more and more wants to judge people by their worst moment. By the way, when we uh, we complain about people doing that, when Christians express their viewpoints, we have to remember, we've been the impressors in that for years as a church. The church has been and continues to be a source of shame for many people. We need to be a church that does not deal in shame so people hear a message of hope and grace, grace is that ultimate message of hope. And it's a tragedy when people think that of the church, they don't think of that hope and grace, they think of shame. And as important as it is to hear from an expert on shame like Brene Brown, this is a sermon, so let's take a look at the Bible. As I said, we're looking at Genesis 3 from verse 1. she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "'What is this you have done?' The woman said, "'The serpent deceived me, and I ate.'" This is a bit of a strange Bible passage. Let's face it, it's not the only strange passage in the Bible. But whatever you might believe on the early part of Genesis and how it, how it happened, whether it's all exactly factual or some Christians will believe Um, that it's like poetry, but not literal. Put that aside, because what we're focusing on today is the story that God wants to tell us about him through this passage, about humanity, about sin, and in particular today, about shame. When it talks about the cool of the day, that's a term they use in the Mediterranean, meaning early evening when things have cooled down when it's actually cold enough that you can be outside again. So when it says they walked with God in that cool of the day, it's just the best part of the day, spending time with God, no agenda. That's the goal, the highest state of things. That's what heaven is going to be, to be in that place of knowing and being known. To do that, you have to have complete trust in God and his character. And that's why we see the serpent question Eve's trust in God. Did God really say that? If you don't have that complete trust and faith in God, it impacts then how much trust and faith you have in yourself. Because if you trust God completely, you can trust him when he says, we're forgiven. When we are made perfect, we are his children, we're adopted as co-heirs with Christ, we're loved with an everlasting love. But if we don't trust God completely... We can't trust him when he says all those things to us or any other promises to us. We don't fully believe our identity or our worth is found in him and him alone. And so we have to try and achieve our identity and worth and other things. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they lose their innocence and they enter into Satan's world of judgment, first of all, on themselves. We see them get into judging others very quickly when God asks if they'd eaten from the tree and Adam says, the woman gave it to me, Terrible." But first of all, we see them judging themselves. It says they realized they were naked. They were always naked, but the first time it felt wrong. The first time they feel they have something to hide. They feel they aren't fit to be with God or to even be seen by God. And that's just been a universal struggle for so many people ever since. It's exactly what shame does. It says, need to hide that. What would people think if they knew? So we hide ourselves, or at least parts of ourselves, that we believe are not right. Adam and Eve are hiding, so God asks, Where are you? He's not asking this because he's not sure where they are, he's omnipresent and omniscient. That means he's everywhere and he knows everything. This is not like a game of hide-and-seek where he's struggling to find them. It's more like that game of hide-and-seek where the child hides behind the curtains but the, the curtain doesn't go below the waist and they're sat behind it giggling to themselves thinking they're really well hidden and the parent can see exactly where they are but pretends for a while they can't find them. God is like the parent saying, where could they be when he knows exactly where they are. When we read the Bible, we don't often get an indication of how someone says something, that tone of voice. Sometimes we're told, and sometimes it's obvious in context. But a lot of time, we can just naturally read tone into it, which may not be there. And in this passage, a lot of people read this as an angry, Where are you? I don't think that's right. I think this is the, Where are you? of a loving father who's concerned because his children have gone missing. Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God asks, who told you that you were naked? Because they hadn't suddenly become naked. The clothes didn't just fall off, so they ran behind the nearest tree or bush to hide. They were always naked. Nothing had changed except how Adam and Eve saw the situation. They were naked and perfectly happy, enjoying walking with God in the cool of the day, and then suddenly they were afraid and ashamed. When Adam says they were afraid because they were naked, it doesn't just mean it's an issue of their state of undress, it's more than that. By eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they've learned judgment. And so they're judging themselves. They're seeing themselves as something lesser in a way they never did before. They're feeling shame for the first time. So, when God asks, Who told you that you were naked? It really means, Who told you that you need to be ashamed? Who told you that you're not acceptable just as you are? And it was, of course, Satan. Or, as he's also known, the accuser. The Hebrew word Satan literally means accuser. And while we may not see a literal accusation come here from the serpent, what we see is the serpent convinced them to eat the fruit so that they start accusing themselves and then each other. Before that, for that knowledge of good and evil, there was no judgment. Often we read this passage and just see it as, well, this is the story of when sin first entered the world, that first act of disobedience. And it is that, but equally, it's about judgment and therefore shame first entering the world. Judgment on others... And we'll look at that another time. But for today, looking at that, particularly that judgment on ourselves, which brings shame. It brings those feelings of unworthiness, of being unlovable, of being unworthy of love. We experience that shame as pain because we were created for perfect union with God, where we experience his love as the ultimate truth. And so when we feel shame, when we feel unlovable or unworthy of love, It's the exact opposite of what we're created for. That pain of shame is our soul knowing this feeling of a lack of worth is not something we were ever meant to feel. It's the exact opposite of what we were meant to feel. It's the exact opposite of life to the full, where we feel the love of God and we know that we're worthy of love. But we need to realize in this that shame has already been defeated. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The word translated as scorned here is kataphroneo. It means to consider as nothing and also to condemn. That's why some translations use despised. Jesus did away with shame on the cross. In Romans 5, Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter 2, verse 6 says, For in Scripture it says, because he's quoting Isaiah, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious core stone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Shame is defeated just as sin is defeated on the cross. However, just as we can still struggle with sin in this life, the same is true of shame. As I said before when I was quoting Brene Brown, we're all afraid to talk about shame, and the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. I'm going to quote Brene Brown again because she's so much good stuff to say on shame. She says this, shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it It can't survive being shared Shame loves secrecy The most dangerous thing to do After a shaming experience Is hide or bury our story When we bury our story The shame metastasizes Shame loses power When it is spoken In this way we need to cultivate our story To let go of shame And we need to develop, develop shame resilience In order to cultivate our story Here's the bottom line If we want to live and love with our whole hearts, if we want to engage with the world from a place of worthiness, we have to talk about the things that get in our way, especially shame, fear, and our resistance to vulnerability. And that's why I'm giving this sermon. It's certainly not for fun. One of the last things a shy introvert who struggles with fear wants to do is talk about fear. It's not been an easy sermon to prepare but I felt it was necessary. Because the church needs to be the place that talks about shame in a way that frees people. Far too often, the church has been a cause of shame, believing its job is to judge the world. Whenever the church does that, it becomes the accuser, the Satan. The church needs to be a place where people feel safe, whatever their reasons for shame, and can come and be set free of it. When we agree with a message of shame, about ourselves or about anyone else, we are aligning ourselves with Satan. And I'm not saying that to shame anyone, but hopefully to open our eyes to reality of how the enemy uses shame in our lives so we can get free of it. That's what I wanna do this morning. And over the coming weeks, as we look at these barriers to life to the full, I want to open our eyes to reality. Because as well as talking about shame, we need to see things from the right perspective. I'm sorry, I'm going to give you some more Greek words here. I don't like to go to the original Greek or Hebrew too often, but sometimes the English is just inadequate. And I think that's the case here. So this is, I've accidentally cut out the verse. Can someone read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, so we get it? I'm not just guessing it. Yeah. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Thanks. So that confidence, sometimes translated as assurance, but that in that Mike's version, confidence, that's hupostasis. It means the substance or the essence of something. In some context, it means to literally make something solid. When it's used in the context of faith, as it is here, it has to do with seeing something or envisioning something as solid reality. Having a clear vision of something, so clear that you see it as real. That thing you're seeing is real, though, that thing you hope for, that's El Pidzo. And it can mean hope, but it also means to expect or trust. So combined with that hoopostasis, it means to picture something that you trust to be true and expect to actually physically see as true one day. And then we have assurance, sometimes translated as certainty. That's elekos. And this can mean a proof or a persuasion or a conviction. It refers to a feeling you have when you're just certain of something. So when we put that together with the hoopostasis and the elpizo, it means that feeling of confidence and joy you get from picturing what you trust to be true and expect to see as true one day. Have you ever been through a difficult situation where the thing that kept you coming, kept you going through it, was knowing there was going to be a moment coming where that difficult situation was over? For example, say, I don't know, you had to prepare and preach a sermon about fear and shame. I joke about that, but what has been motivating me this week that a leg cost for me It's been the vision of people being made free and seeing it as reality. I don't mean that I think I'm just going to go here. Sorry, my laptop's trying to uh, tell me to start using emojis for some reason. (laughs) Uh, I don't mean that I think I'm going to give this one sermon and everyone's suddenly going to be instantly freed of shame and fear. Although, God, I'm open to it if that's what you want to do today. It's probably more likely for people going to be a process as we look through these different barriers of life to the full. Remember our mission to be that habitation of God's presence within the community. That means being a people who have that caro joy, which is the opposite of fear. A people who are living that life to the full. That's where we're going. It's not just where we want to go. It's not just where we hope to go that's where we're going on a church. That's the journey God is telling us he's taking us on. And we need to trust him in that and we need to envision it as reality for us as a church and for us as individuals. If you're feeling fear, if you're feeling shame, which may be linked to fear, maybe linked to something else, or if you're feeling anything else that is getting in that way, the life to the full, God wants to break it. And to break those things, we need to see reality. Neuroscience has shown that when you imagine something vividly, it has the same effect on your brain as if it had really happened because it activates the exact same set of neurons. Because your brain can't tell the difference between those two things, you get the same feelings from imagining it as true as you do from the real thing. Now, if you do this with something that isn't really true, it could be problematic. It's not helpful to picture yourself as a squirrel to the extent that you start genuinely believing that you're a squirrel. But if you do it with something that is true, if we have the right picture of God and what He wants to do in our lives and where He's taking us, it can be transformative. We need to picture ourselves, to see ourselves freed of all shame and fear, or anything else which may be holding us back from life to the full, because that is reality. You've died to all that stuff. It no longer has any hold on you. You're a holy and blameless child of God. You have a new heart and a new spirit put inside you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, and with him, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in heavenly places. And because of that, you're made alive in Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. Far above all principalities and powers and all the sin that tries to pull you down. That's reality. That is the ultimate reality, more true than anything we see with our own eyes right now. And we need to be able to picture it as reality if we're going to believe it. Because there's a lot of voices in this world who will speak into your life uninvited. Voices that will tell you, now this is what truth is, but are in fact lying to you. Voices that will tell you, you should feel shame. Picturing reality, it's a discipline, it's something we need to do repeatedly to cleanse ourselves from the distorted view of reality we get from the world. My dad looked at this recently in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John Ortberg puts it like this. We are out of our minds. Our lives are filled with anxiety or fear or joy or confidence, depending on what it is that's going on in our minds. We want to take the thoughts of Jesus so that our minds can begin to be reformed and our lives can begin to be transformed. There's a painting in the National Gallery called uh, The Virgin and Child with Saints Jerome and Dominic uh, by an artist called Filippino Lippi. It shows the baby Jesus on Mary's knee and there's these two saints kneeling in front of Mary and Jesus, looking up at them. And then there's some hills in the background. And for many years, this painting was considered a masterpiece, but not Lippi's best. It was good enough for the National Gallery, but apparently the hills behind, they looked out of perspective. They looked like they were coming almost out of the painting, like they were going to fall out. So somehow, it's a masterpiece, but the hills are all wrong. I don't know how that works. I don't have much understanding of art. I just heard Pete Gregg share this story this week and I thought it was really good, so I nicked it. <laughs> anyway, for many years, everyone thought this painting was just had this big mistake in it. Until there was this art critic called Robert Cumming. He was in the National Gallery staring at the painting. And he had a thought. He said, well, this painting originally with the Mary and Jesus. This would have been on an altar, what they call an altarpiece. And so people coming to it would have knelt before it. And so probably feeling very self-conscious as he did it, in the middle of the National Gallery, Robert Cumming knelt down in front of a painting. And he suddenly found those hills were not a mistake. This was not a flawed painting. Everyone had just been looking at it from the wrong perspective because you go to a gallery, you stand in front of the painting, you move on to the next one. But when Robert Cumming knelt in front of the painting, he found the hills were in perfect perspective now. This was not a flawed masterpiece, it was a perfect masterpiece. When we kneel, or when we come to God sitting or standing, whatever position you want to come to, in, it changes our perspective. God wants to do that in our lives this morning, to give us a fresh perspective on who He is and a fresh perspective on what reality is. And I want us to do that now. If you want to kneel as, you, as I do this, please feel free to do that, but don't feel any pressure to. You may not feel comfortable kneeling for whatever reason, you may be thinking, I won't be able to kneel with my knees. And even if I could, I certainly wouldn't be able to get back up. And that's perfectly fine. You can sit, you can stand, you can lie on the floor, whatever you want to do. But I'm going to kneel now. I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, I I pray right now in this moment and and then as we uh, worship, you just give us a fresh revelation of who you are, a fresh revelation of reality. Strengthen our faith, that confidence in what we hope for, that assurance of what we do not see. Just help us to see it, to picture it, to see the truth of who you are, to see how much you love us, Lord. I just, I just picture you now just holding me in your arms, uh, your arms of love. I pray for everyone else here, they could, they could picture that in the same way, picture themselves held in your arms of love. I pray as well, for if there's any, any of us here struggling with fear and shame or anything else, may it help us to have a picture of, of ourselves freed. I just want to picture myself now freed from fear, freed from shame, because that's, that's my destination. I may mean, not be able to put a date on it right now, but that's my destination. That That's not just a... I hope that happens one day. That's an inevitability in my life because of what you've done on the cross, Lord. And I pray for anyone struggling with with fear or shame or anything else, that they're able to see that. See that concretely in front of them because that is truth. Anything the world says that tells you you should feel fear or shame or anything else, that's not reality. Reality is, you've set us free, Lord. Thank you. Help us to see that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.